What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Now let's kick this thing off. Teddy Schleifer is a reporter who writes about the influence of billionaires, particularly in Silicon Valley. He is also helping launch a new media company called Puck. In this conversation, we discuss billionaires, philanthropy, good intentions versus bad outcomes, power, influence, money, and ego. I really enjoyed this conversation with Teddy, and I hope you do as well. Before we get into this episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. First up is Polymarket, the world's leading information markets platform, where you can trade on the most pressing global questions all on the blockchain. You can choose from a variety of markets. Will Cardano support smart contracts by October? Will the U.S. have more than 100,000 COVID cases before 2022? Will Trump run for president? With over $100 million traded in its first year, Polymarket is the go-to platform to settle the biggest debates of the day. Think you know more than the market? Trade on your beliefs and earn a return if you're right. Do you want tomorrow's news today? Use Polymarket to see real-time data on what the market thinks will happen. No fake news, no pundits without skin in the game. So head over to polymarket.com and make an account today. For a limited time, sign up for with a referral code POMP to get your first trade reimbursed up to $100. That's right. If you go to polymarket.com and use code POMP, your first trade, regardless of how much it is, up to $100 will be completely reimbursed. Go check them out, polymarket.com, use code POMP and get that first trade reimbursed. You got nothing to lose. Go check it out and let me know what you think. Next up is Cosmos. Cosmos is building the internet of blockchains, marking a new era of interoperability, scalability, and usability. The free flow of assets and data between blockchains with bridges to Ethereum and Bitcoin will unleash the potential of DeFi, NFTs, and much more. You can dive into Cosmos and learn more at cosmos.network slash pomp. Again, cosmos.network slash pomp. Go check out the Internet of Blockchains, marking a new era of interoperability, scalability, and usability A free flow of assets and data between blockchains, including bridges to Ethereum and Bitcoin. Cosmos.network slash POMP. Go check them out. Last but not least is Matrix Port. Have you lost your way in this low-yield environment while searching for a better store of value to beat inflation? Look no further. Invest with Matrixport to get more out of your crypto. You can invest today and earn up to 30% annualized yields. Matrixport is Asia's fastest-growing digital asset platform founded by crypto veterans. With $10-plus billion in assets under management and custody, Matrixport offers one-stop crypto financial solutions, including fixed income, DeFi in one-click, structured products, cactus custody, spot OTC, and lending. You can earn from high single digit with fixed income to high double digit yield with dual currency products. If you hold crypto and look for a yield, this app you don't want to miss. Go download the app by clicking on the link in the description and enjoy a high yield on USDC for new users. Again, go click on the link in the description, download the app, and check out Matrix Port. Click on the link in the description. Let's go. All right, let's get into this episode with Teddy. Hope you guys enjoy this one. Anthony Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of him and the guests on his podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys. Bang, bang. I've got Teddy here with me. Thank you so much for doing this. Sure thing. Absolutely. So you are uh, part of a team that is releasing a new media publication called uh, Puck, website puck.news. And I couldn't help to start the conversation. When I went to the website, it simply says a new media company covering power, money, and ego. 
And those three mm-hmm. words, I think, uh, elicit all kinds of emotional responses from people, power, money, and ego. Uh, but you've been writing about a lot of this stuff for a while. Where does the personal fascination or interest come from uh, in covering some of these topics? So in some ways, the world is very big, and in some ways, it's very small. Um, what, what I mean by that is there are you know 350 million people in the United States, um, but a very small number of people have an enormous amount of influence in American society. People who like, you know, I think lots of listeners might not even know their names. If you look at the Forbes 400 list from time to time, I'm always uh, humored at like how many of these people, even as someone who covers billionaires, I have never heard of, you know, people who have 30, $40 billion who made their money in some God awful, boring industry um, um, who have enormous amount of assets and, can convert that into political influence, philanthropic influence, uh, influence in just kind of the, in public life more broadly. Um, so Puck's kind of central uh, conceit is that the world is actually driven by a small number of people um, and that there is uh, a, a big world that is governed by people in Hollywood, people in Washington, people in Wall Street, people in Silicon Valley. Um, and that ultimately that that world needs to be uh, unspooled for the rest of us to understand. Um, and, and these worlds are also, I feel like, often very uh, are treated as isolated power sectors. Right. People in Hollywood who cover Hollywood really well. People on Wall Street who cover the financial system really well. You know, I've covered Silicon Valley. Um, this is actually really one world. Right. The people on Wall Street have influence in Washington and people in Washington are trying to regulate people in Silicon Valley and Silicon Valley is attacking Hollywood and creeping on kind of traditional studios. Um, so one of the other ideas of Puck is that let's, let's kind of narrow the synapse here and try to really uncover this as one world. Um, so my story is I used to be at, at CNN before this covering money and politics and covering kind of billionaires who were trying to, you know, kind of elect presidents or elect governors or elect mayors um, and then I moved out here to San Francisco in 2017 uh, to join Recode and write about sort of the billionaires of the tech industry. You know, the people who make huge amounts of money. What do they do with it afterwards? Um, you know, I've always been uh, less interested in how the money's made and then more in how it's spent. Um, and so at Recode over the last four years, I've been one of the main people writing about kind of tech billionaires' influence in politics or influence in charity. And now I'm over at Puck to do the power, money, and ego world uh, beat over over there. And I think it's I think it's a great, it's a great, uh, great company. And I think people who are listening will like it a lot. You recently wrote a piece uh, that has a crazy statistic in it. And you said eight tech billionaires today control more than one trillion dollars in assets. It's roughly equivalent to the market cap of Bitcoin or about one third the wealth of the bottom 50% of Americans combined. And then you go on to talk about not only do they hold uh, those eight people about a trillion dollars in assets, but it's actually accelerating. You point out Steve Ballmer basically has doubled his net worth in the last two years. Larry Page, Sergey Brin, the same thing. Jack Dorsey, and you kind of go down the line. Yeah. How uh, unprecedented is this level of wealth versus these are just different players, but the world has always had, you know, this type of concentration of wealth? It's a great question. I mean, I think the problem has gotten the problem or the opportunity, depending how you, on your politics and how you see it. Um, I do think it's, it's, 
it, it, the trend is accelerating for sure. You know, I was reading um, the, one of my favorite books, uh, or what became one of my favorite books is called Wealth and Democracy by uh, Kevin Phillips. And he wrote it in 2000, around 2000, about uh, the, the first Gilded Age. And this is often something I'm asked about is, is this really that different than like, you know, Rockefeller and Carnegie? Um, and I think the answer is in some ways, yes, in some ways, no. Yes, there's always been an enormous wealth concentration in, you know, America that comes with more and more uh, capitalist innovation, right? You have the Industrial Revolution that then creates um, economic concentration uh, among wealthy people. At the same time, it leads to a growing middle class, yada, yada, yada. And I think the question that I often wrestle with is how do you encourage kind of an economic expansion while still trying to make sure that those gains are broadly shared, right? Um, so in some ways, it's similar to the first Gilded Age, but in some ways, this is an entirely different beast. And I think the, putting our hands around the numbers often helps because it's very easy to sit here and say, you know, what's the big deal about billionaires remaining billionaires, right? Rich people are still rich. You're not going to get an iPhone push alert for uh, Steve Ballmer's net worth doubling in two years, but Steve Ballmer's net worth has doubled in two years. And what does that mean for society? What does that mean for uh, Seattle or Los Angeles or Detroit cities that are heavily dependent on Steve Ballmer's philanthropy? What does that mean for the Clippers? Who, I mean, there's all these questions that, that uh, are, are uh, second order effects of wealthy people getting wealthier. I mean, you could argue that this is good, that rich people getting richer eventually leads to more money for social projects. Um, I think you also have to concede, though, that it leads to, uh, in some ways, a less of a traditional democracy. Um, and I don't, I'm not going to overstate the case. I don't think that, like, you know, Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer and Sergey Brin are sitting there, you know, deciding public policy on a WhatsApp chain um, as part of some secret billionaire cabal. But, you know, obviously, wealthy people have more power than, than I do. Uh, or even pop than you do, and 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 uh, really wealthy people getting wealthier, I think, does lead to greater economic concentration, and and it can lead to greater political concentration of power. That that's that's what I wrestle with, um, and I, I imagine lots of people who are even even billionaire fans, so to speak, even people who think that wealthy people are more effective at solving public problems than government, have to kind of feel when you read the stats that you know there are some downsides to this stuff. So there's two kind of interesting conversation points here, right? The first is I think a lot of the coverage, and, and you previously wrote this, um, which I think is a fair point, is you said a big reason I've been drawn to writing about power and influence is because of these singular individuals' eagerness to remake the world in their image. And so would it be yeah. a fair character characterization if these billionaires, wealthy people, however you wanted to classify them, if they just had all the money sitting in the bank and they weren't doing philanthropy, they weren't spending it, they weren't trying to influence things, it would be just a much less interesting story. So it's like less about the wealth itself and it's more about like, what are they doing with it? Is, is that fair? Sure. I mean, yes. Uh, if, if, you know, if, if Bill Gates had $150 billion and he stored it under his mattress, right? Um, and he wasn't trying to oversee uh, America's COVID response and wasn't trying to influence the U.S. education policy, it would be a much more boring story. And I think there are some activists who, believe it or not, I think there are some activists who would say that that is a better outcome for America, that wealthy people using their money to influence public policy uh, 
often leads to worse outcomes. I, I don't I don't know if I agree with that like wholesale. I think there are some times, obviously, when uh, philanthropic projects do backfire. Um, but ultimately, you know, the when I say wealthy people want to remake the world in their image, I don't necessarily mean that in a bad way. Like I don't necessarily mean that you know uh, they're they're trying to you know sitting there trying to. Uh, uh, create schools that reflect their ideology or fund climate change in ways that they think are best. I think it's just natural. If you have a lot of money, you think about what are my obligations to society? And then when you think about that question, it leads to you doing things that can kind of skew the public policy process. Um, uh, whether that's through political donations, philanthropic donations, sometimes the line between those two things can be kind of blurry. So to answer your question, like, yes, I do think it will be more boring if people didn't do anything. Um, and ultimately, they are remaking the world in their image, in their image, though, just by fact of being human beings, right? They have their own biases. Like these are all white guys. Let's just start with that fact, right? Who all have their own biases they're bringing to the fore. Um, they all have their own political opinions. So sometimes I think it's an unreasonable critique to say, um, well, should these people literally do nothing with the money, right? Like, I mean, that's would you rather Bill Gates not involved in a COVID response at all? Um, I don't know. These are thorny questions because at the same time, having these people involved, I think, does give them more power. And how do we reckon with that? But that's 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 the question that motivates my reporting. So the second part of this conversation um, has got kind of uh, two perspectives from my standpoint. One is, uh, is there a right answer or is it all there's a spectrum and each situation is different? Each person is different. And we have to keep that in mind. Um, and then also, do you generally think the intentions are positive or do you think that there is like malicious intent, uh, maybe at times or, or overall? Like, how do you think through? And, and I'm trying to just identify like the framework you use. So, like, is there a right yeah. answer, or is there not always a right answer? And also, is there good intentions, but maybe negative outcomes sometimes? Or do you see like actual malicious behavior at times? I don't think there's a right answer. I mean, um, uh, if I, if I thought there was a right answer, I'd probably be in a different field trying to. Uh, you could make a billion dollars and just do it, execute the right. It would be easy if there was a right answer, right? Like, I mean, to me, the debate over kind of billionaires in society, all, all interesting questions journalistically are about the gray zone, right? Like about the things that are like, well, you know, we get this good thing, but in exchange for this bad thing, I love the gray zone. That's, that's why like, we get into the, like, that's why things are intellectually interesting. I think there's a, there's a lot of trade-offs in this world, right? I mean, as I mentioned a second ago, if you want wealthy people to feel a sense of civic responsibility, you want them to do something. Um, oftentimes what they do can entrench their power. So it's, it's often a trade-off. I wish there was a right answer. It would make everyone's lives and a, a lot easier. To your second question, do I think there's ulterior motives or do I think they're just unintended consequences? I would say it's more unintended consequences. Um, I mean, we're also uh, way over generalizing here as, as I'm happy to do, but I think like, you know, we're talking, I think if you talk to wealthy people, they would say, Oh, I'm not Charles Koch, right? Charles Koch, I'm, I'm Reid Hoffman or I'm Dustin Moskovitz or I'm Carla Jurvetson or choose your kind of billionaire du jour. Um, they would say like, you know, almost a hashtag of not, not all billionaires. Um, when, when kind of trying to distinguish between some people might have ulterior motives, but I do not. Look, I mean, do I, I think every wealthy person is trying to do what they think is best and whether or not you think they have an ulterior motive probably depends on whether or not you agree with them or not. Um, like, you know, you would, I would often hear, you know, when I covered kind of conservative billionaires and I was at CNN, you know, you often hear a critique of, oh, wealthy people are just, you know, Charles Koch is just doing this to lower his tax bill because he wants to get wealthier. And, you know, I'm, I'm fighting for democracy, but they're fighting 
fighting for their bottom line. Like that often reflects your, your point of view. I would talk with donors in the Charles Koch network who certainly didn't think that, you know, Koch was out there to enrich his bottom line. They think that Charles Koch is fighting for democracy and they might have their own kind of critique of kind of lefty donors. That's to say that everyone's got their subjectivity here. I think one person's ulterior motive uh, is another person's uh, good hearted public spiritness. It's not, it's not I, I, again, I wish these things were easier and simpler, but oftentimes uh, the gray zone is, is where these things really are. What is, uh, in your opinion, the current state of uh, maybe billionaire spending or, or philanthropy or however you want to call it, right? So there's obviously they're giving away some of the money. They are yeah. spending some of the money and then they're investing, holding on assets, et cetera. Is there one like overarching strategy or framework that you would apply where you're like, hey, at this current time, most people, they sign the giving pledge. They don't give it away until they're dead. They invest, you know, 70 percent of the money. Like, like, how do you just think about what the average billionaire, which sounds ridiculous, but the average billionaire actually does? No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, I think it's I think it's overgeneralizing is. Uh, tricky, but sometimes it's actually useful to talk about this stuff um, because, because to my point, you can always slice and dice it and make your own kind of narrow points. But let's talk about like the big picture. So let's just start with something you talk about a lot on, on the show, which is like the stock market being absolutely bonkers, right? Billionaires are getting wealthier. Like I think when, when we talk about kind of philanthropy, uh, there's the numerator and there's the denominator, right? Um, and I, I like to make fun of this this group uh, of people on Twitter that I call. Uh, net worth Twitter, right? Who anytime there's any philanthropic donation announced, immediately they are, you know, pounding the keyboard to compute what percent of their net worth this wealthy person is giving away. And then they, you know, bring out the guillotine, bring it to the mansion and immediately call for the execution of billionaire du jour. That is like, uh, I'm being affectionate toward this group of people, but it's very predictable. And I, uh, takes about five seconds before any gift is tweeted before they are all up in your menchies. Um, so, so, but I also think that the denominator matters. Like, I mean, even since the, you know, the concept of like tithing, right, in the Bible that, and and, and lots of kind of uh, Christians still think about, you know, giving away 10% of your assets um, is kind of the morally right thing to do. So, and that's a percentage, right? That's about, a, it's a numerator over a denominator. So I don't think the denominator is relevant as much as like the network Twitter people can be kind of uh, annoying at times as, as much as I love them. So the current state of billionaire philanthropy and billionaires more broadly is these people are getting wealthier. That's step one. At the same time, are people announcing charitable pledges and commitments that like make your jaws drop? Absolutely. And so the numerator is, at least in terms of pledges, is as high as it's ever been, right? So wealthy people are signing the giving pledge to your, to your point earlier, though the rate of people signing it has definitely slowed down. They are announcing big pledges. Like you see Jeff Bezos last year announced or yeah, last year announced $10 billion to address climate change. You know, Jack Dorsey and Mackenzie Scott made some of kind of the other big charitable gifts during COVID that, you know, are some of the biggest charitable gifts ever. So I often find that when we talk about kind of billionaires, multiple things can be true at once, right? A, wealthy people can be doing these incredible acts of generosity, blah, blah, blah. And at the same time, they can be not keeping up with the stock market because the stock market is... Crazy. So, so how can both those things be true at once? Like the numerator can be going up and the denominator can be going up. And my favorite stat on this whole thing is, you know, I mentioned Mackenzie Scott, Jeff Bezos's ex-wife uh, a minute ago, and Mackenzie Scott gave away, um, I think she's given away $8 billion uh, over 
I forget if it's over 18 month period or 12 month period, you know, obviously generated tons of headlines. We have, we can talk about kind of McKenzie and the impact she's had on the charitable sector, but McKenzie Scott is still getting wealthier. Even though McKenzie Scott has given away more money at a faster clip than any person ever has in human history ever, at least someone who's alive, not like in a will. And yet she's still getting wealthier because Amazon has decided like, okay, McKenzie, that's an interesting stat. Let me give you another stat on top of that, which is that we're going to grow at an absolutely absurd rate and we're going to make you wealthier. So Mackenzie Scott, who signed the giving pledge saying she wants to empty the safe, she wants to empty her assets, is failing at that. Even though she's you know, doing all this good in the world, um, the denominator is getting bigger at a faster rate than the numerator is. So uh, you know that introduces all these interesting questions about what can wealthy people do to give it away faster? Do they really want to give it away faster? You know, if they really want to empty the safe, should they just like sell all of their positions? <laughs> um, that might be a faster way to do it than through philanthropy. So you said uh, doing good in the world, and this is like one of those uh, questions that does not have uh, an answer, but but just how you think about it. How do we measure? Let's say that a billionaire gives away, you know, five hundred million dollars. How do we actually yeah. measure? Are they doing good in the world or are they wasting money? Like to some degree, uh, it's not like a business where you can explicitly say, okay, I'm going to invest $500 million. I expect this is going to bring me back $2 billion in profits over the next five years. And you either hit the numbers or you don't, right? This is a little bit different. And so how do you look at maybe good decisions, bad decisions on capital allocation and also like doing good in the world versus not? Uh, Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, there's, uh, I I think some people- Let's let let's 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 say um, you and I had a billion dollars tomorrow. Um, nice. Uh, yes, very good. Uh, <laughs> some some people would be. I think like I don't I don't mean this to be glib. Like I don't think some people are overly concerned with effectiveness. Um, I think some people see uh, generally donors more aligned with the further left see the their objective primarily as disempowering themselves. Um, so I think Mackenzie is a great example of that. She's spoken eloquently about, um, you know, the need that she shouldn't be as powerful in society as she is. And to some extent, like whether or not the groups you fund are effective or not, I mean, I'm sure she'd rather they be effective than not, but like it doesn't necessarily the matter um, as much. I guess the the flip side of that would be things like the effective altruism movement, which a lot of your listeners probably know about because it has a lot of overlap with with crypto. A lot of crypto people are big into effective altruism, those people are almost exclusively concerned with effectiveness. What can you measure? Is there a randomized controlled trial to uh, substantiate the fact that this thing works? Um, you know, It's very popular to fund things like GiveWell, which is a kind of a big philanthropy that you know, tries to run the numbers on everything and funds things like, you know, recommends funding things like malaria nets in Africa. And it doesn't recommend funding things like giving $300 million to Harvard. Um, even if Harvard is where you went to college, like no one cares if I don't, you know, whether or not you went to Harvard or Stanford should not, should not impact the things that get funded in the world. Um, and you should fund malaria nets instead. Um, that's kind of the range of thought. There are, there are, there are people who see philanthropy as all about, you know, personal self-actualization, disempowering yourselves and centering nonprofits, centering people of color, centering people who are not the billionaires. And then there's the other range that that, that range runs all the way through. I should be a cold blooded capitalist mercenary and fund 
whatever works. And if this thing is 0.07369% more likely to, you know, save a human life, then I will do that. Um, that's kind of, that's kind of the range. Um, and I think lots of Silicon Valley donors, um, you know, it's interesting. I, mean, I see generational differences between this stuff. Um, you know, a lot of the young crypto billionaires, uh, are very interested in effective altruism. And they think they think that um, there's a way to make a lot of money and use the money for good. Uh, and they sort of reject the soft, touchy-feely, you know, I want to give to my alma mater BS. And I think there's a good debate about that stuff. A couple of the stats that over the last few weeks, um, as I've been looking deeper and deeper into uh, potential impacts of monetary policy and, and fiscal policy that have blown me away are uh, three in particular. One, uh, 80% of millionaires in America are reported to have inherited $0. So 20% inherited something, 80% inherited yep. nothing. And I look at that stat, maybe it's 75, maybe it's 85, whatever, just directionally, it's much bigger than I think most people would originally guess. The second stat is uh, approximately 33% of Americans have never made more than 100K in a given year as a household income, which again, directionally much lower than I think most people would guess if, if uh, yeah. you're an American millionaire. And then the last statistic is that uh, in America, 80% of workers earn $15 an hour or more. And I think people get caught up in like the minimum wage uh, kind of political debate. But when you account for all American workers, and I'm assuming this includes everything from white collar all the way down to the actual minimum wage workers, 80% already make $15 an hour or more. And again, whether that is 80% or 70% almost doesn't matter as much as just much bigger number than I think most people would guess based on that, that public narrative. And so the reason why I bring up those three statistics is if we concede that, okay, they're directionally correct, how much of the billionaire class and maybe even now the millionaire class as we get more and more millionaires in America is simply a product of uh, kind of the monetary and fiscal policy. And this is almost like the educated class, right? It's like the people who understand own assets, you're going to have the tailwind at your back. Those that live and hold cash only or live paycheck to paycheck, they kind of go the other way and we get this widening wealth inequality gap. Is that a fair tailwind to identify and say, yes, you can do things in as an asset owner to be wealthier or not as wealthy as your peers. But there is this like almost education gap that ends up driving this inequality to some degree. I think it's a that's a, that's a great point. Um, lots of lots of this debate doesn't really allow for that nuance. Right. I mean, if you if you if you are someone who believes that the rich should be, uh, you know, put one of those guillotines, you, so you tend to have this caricature of like Scrooge McDuck, right, of like, the wealthy person who is like clenching their money around the hard cash and like, you know, batting away the poor people who are asking for for handouts. Diving in the gold are, coins. <laughs> right, right. And if, and if you are some like, you know, billionaire bootlicker, um, then you are a believer that like these people are God's gift to the earth. And how dare you criticize or even scrutinize charitable giving or how they made their money because these are, you know, the icons of, of our time. The reality is like much more boring. The, rea the reality of like why wealthy people and why inequality, um, at least over the last five years, is growing. I mean, not, not that what you laid out is the whole story, but certainly part of the story is things like the Fed, um, you know, the Trump tax cuts, um, like uh, monetary and fiscal policy that leads asset holders um, to get wealthier over time. Right. I mean, that's, you know, like why is Amazon stock going up? It's not entirely because Jeff Bezos is, you know, 
sitting there fighting away, you know, Amazon warehouse workers with his bare hands and, uh, you know, depriving them of, of kind of the money that they're owned. Although there's a great debate to be had about that. Like part of it is just boring reasons like quantitative easing that creates, you know, asset bubbles and blah, blah, blah. Um, that stuff doesn't really get talked about on MSNBC or, you know, frankly, in lots of news. Um, but billionaires and inequality, billionaires get wealthier. I think one of the main reasons they got wealthier during COVID, for instance, which is a sensitive question um, that obviously has stirred a lot of kind of good conversation about the fairness of the system. A lot of it is reasons that are beyond their control. Like, are they out there pushing the Fed for quantitative easing? Eh, you know, have some of them supported Trump tax cuts? Definitely. But these are like kind of the more fundamental structural issues that you're pointing out that don't get much airtime um, because they're more boring. But I think they do contribute to inequality for sure. Yeah, it's interesting because... Um it, you can't quantify it, right? How much of somebody's wealth is because of structural issues versus they did something versus right. they took advantage of a worker. I mean, there's, it's impossible. Uh, and if you even look at somebody like Bezos, I mean, he, he's fascinating to me because uh, during COVID, I forget exactly. I remember there was at least one pledge they were going to hire 100,000 workers during COVID. And at the time that, you know, millions of Americans are losing their jobs, basically they're soaking right. up as much employment, you know, opportunities as they can. Uh, and then you would see articles where people are like, well, they don't get so many bathroom breaks or, you know, wh whatever it is. And as I've like looked at this, to me, it's almost like the truth is somewhere in between. If you take like the two extremist views of like, he employed, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. Oh, he also doesn't let them go to the bathroom. It's like, well, actually right. both have like a kernel of truth in them. And I, I think that the internet, uh, while it drastically increases awareness and allows for kind of public discourse, the nuance is, you know, it, it's almost banned, right? It's, it's not allowed to uh, to be had in, uh, in, you know, 280 characters for sure, let alone in some of these other mediums. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to two things can be true at once is often kind of my, my claim on this stuff. And that's not like a side, that's not like a sidestep over or you're not wrestling with the tension, but it's like, like, Yes, Amazon could be hiring more people than ever before and, you know, uh, helping people who otherwise would have no job have a job. At the same time, you know, Amazon clearly has been, you know, uh, on a warpath during the pandemic and has made Jeff Bezos, you know, uh, the wealthiest person in at least in, in today in, in current history. And that should increase scrutiny on Bezos. And like, is that legitimate? Is that fair? Is, you know, I guess I don't want to like elide the hard questions. And I do think that like, you could reasonably say, is Jeff Bezos worth $200 billion because he, you know, decided to incorporate Washington, state, the, the company in Washington, which is a state with sort of a not very progressive tax system. And, you know, why is uh, Bezos, not treating workers fairly and is that a contributor to his current wealth level like you can have that debate for sure um so i don't want to like pretend it's entirely structural uh but clearly some of the structural things that you're talking about are a part of the story yeah one, one of the things that's really interesting to me i think is when you start to unpack um a lot of this debate around wealth inequality specifically uh mm -hmm. if you know just look right now in america today there's 10 million plus open roles. Uh, it's the most that, that we've ever had um, in, the, in the housing market. And people are being forced as business owners. You know, you see every kind of anecdotal story on Twitter where there's a fast food restaurant that's paying 15, 16, $17 an hour. They're offering, you know, bonuses. If you come and get an interview, you can get an iPhone yeah. if you get a job at McDonald's or, or whatever. So obviously people are struggling to, to hire. I wonder how much of this is as the billionaires get richer, 
And we know that there's a massive wealth inequality gap that's getting worse, but still even the worst off in our society. If you buy into a lot of the longer term data around this is the safest, most wealthiest, most prosperous you know, time in history, in human history, um, it makes you think if you're a student of history, like, oh, there's bad things that need to be fixed today, but it's better than it's ever been. But it still doesn't solve the short term problem. And, and I guess like from your perspective, how many of these folks who have uh, the financial means, regardless of how they deploy it, how many of them understand the long term tailwinds, the point in history that we're at, the structural? Like, are they thinking deeply about that or are they simply saying to themselves, I'm going to donate $100 million this year and $20 million is going to feed you know, the hungry, $20 million is going here. And, and they just kind of think about it from a, a more action yeah, more piecemeal. Yeah. yeah. Versus actually trying to think like, First principle, structural, um, you know, how do we change this for future generations? I think uh, for all of wealthy people's uh, power, um, and I think most wealthy people understand they have a lot of power, you might you might get some some weaseling out of that question. And like, what am I to do? Like, I, like I hear this sometimes. Um, um, like, let's take the debate over taxes, right? Um, um, there are obviously uh, wealthy liberal mega donors claim that they want taxes to go up and that, you know, the taxes revenue that's, you know, driven by those increases will then lead to social, lead to kind of more money for social problems. And that, you know, they, they believe in theory, and I, I don't doubt they believe this, that lots of these things should be problems should be solved by government and that sort of, they, they shouldn't have to give away $20 million to feed the hungry because the solution to public problems should be public policy and government led solutions, not private citizens, you know, doing things out of the generosity of their heart. Um, and you often get things like, like, what am I to do? Like, I, I'm not in charge of U.S. tax policy. Like, I'm just a voter. You know, I contribute to, you know, Democratic campaigns and Democratic super PACs. And I'm out here to trying to make sure that wealthy people um, pay more in taxes. You know, if I'm Reed Hoffman and I gave a bajillion dollars to support Joe Biden um, and I'm for higher taxes, you might say, uh yeah, I, that sounds great, but I'm not in charge of American tax policy. I think that can be true, and it can also be a cop out. And and the reason I say that is because you see things like, um, you know, uh, the, the ProPublica kind of tax leaks, right? Um, regardless of uh, the wisdom of or, or the fairness of those things being out there, they're out there, um, and they show obviously that lots of wealthy people actually pay very little in taxes, or some wealthy people pay very little in taxes. Um, and lots of times wealthy people, although they're not necessarily um, uh, in charge of U.S. tax policy, certainly are taking advantage of every loophole that's you know permitted on God's green earth. Um, and I think there are some things that wealthy people can do to kind of better equip the public sector with the money that it needs to solve public problems that go short of like being appointed secretary of the treasury, which is often I feel like the bar that some of these people will hold themselves to unless they're like, unless they're held responsible for their public actions. Like I think even, even as private citizens, there are things we can do um, to make the system more fair um, that are short of, of, you know, running for president. Yeah. Well, do, do you think we're going to see more billionaires running for president? Yes, for sure. I mean, uh, uh, like, uh, I, I think Trump will not be the last billionaire president. I think lots of these wealthy people uh, have enormous egos for sure. And, um, you know, despite Bloomberg, it, it's funny, like, I feel like lots of white people watched Bloomberg blow up and thought like, oh, what's well, just because he's like this, you know, stiff has been of the past. And like, I'm the billionaire who can solve it uh, for sure. I think lots of these people easily think that they could do it. And um, 
Uh, I mean, for, you know, we've seen, even though Bloomberg failed and Tom Steyer failed, like there's J.B. Pritzker, who's the new governor of Illinois, who I believe is a billionaire. Um, like there's a long history in this country of uh, extremely wealthy people running for office and succeeding. Uh, and I think uh, wealthy people read the Bloomberg news as like an aberration rather than uh, <laughs> anything that should actually indict them uh, and their political skills more broadly. He didn't win. And if I remember correctly, he spent like a billion dollars uh, before he yeah. finally stepped away. Uh, but he, he did some, give he us some, some delegates in American Samoa, though. So, yeah. Well, well uh, he, here's the, here's my favorite part is he did get us some great uh, Instagram memes. They went and they bought a bunch of the right. uh, the memes on uh, on Instagram. So we got and that out of it. How can you put a price on that? I mean, so our point about effectiveness, you know, you can't put a price on joy and yeah. the joy that those memes encouraged and brought brought to American society. Definitely worth a uh, billion dollars. Thank you, Mike. <laughs> uh, let's talk about uh, kind of Bitcoin and crypto billionaires. Um, I don't know sure. how accurate the statistic is, uh, but from what I can tell, it's again directionally accurate that when Bitcoin hits somewhere between one hundred seventy thousand and two hundred thousand dollars per Bitcoin, about fifty percent of the Forbes four hundred list will come from this industry. And again, let's say that those numbers aren't perfect. Some big percentage of the world's wealthy will come from this industry shortly, right? Depending on when that actually occurs, is there a difference? between uh, let's let's call them uh, fiat billionaires versus crypto billionaires, or you got a billion, you got a billion, and, and what it took to get there makes your personality et cetera very similar. I th- I'm, I'm interested in what you think in this one. Um, I mean, I, mean I, I think, I think, I, think uh, I mean, you, you're more obviously plugged into the, the crypto world than I am, but like a lot of people in crypto are, are, are kind of uh, eccentric. Is that, is, that, is that wrong? And like, and I think they have different views of kind of, what the responsibilities of society are. I mean, tell me, do you, do you think, do you think it's going to be that different? I think it's like everything, right? Some are exactly the same, right? I mean, there's people who are going to make a billion dollars off of Bitcoin or crypto or, you know, whatever industry, and they're already a fiat billionaire, right? So it's just kind of compounding. A, already, a, a, already a fiat billionaire. And then they basically are. And, yeah. So now are they a crypto billionaire or a fiat billionaire? Well, they're both, right? So like a billionaire is a billionaire to, to some degree. Um, but yeah. there's definitely some people who have uh, accrued an incredible amount of personal wealth in a very short period of time who previously were not wealthy. That could be early investors in one of these assets. That could be the creator of the asset. That could be creator of infrastructure. And it's like more of like a traditional uh, private company, et cetera. And what I actually think is probably the biggest difference if I had to to kind of think about it um, at the Mm -hmm. moment, and this probably will actually change over time, is this, let's call them the initial class of crypto billionaires. They look much more to technology and building as a solution more so than policy, right? If you look at, you know, in Washington for as much wealth has been generated in this industry, it's really not that much policy in terms of trying to influence mm-hmm. politics or put people in office or or do a lot of that stuff. And I think some of it is, um, I think it's Balaji Srinivasan has this like thought process of East Coast versus West Coast. A lot of the East Coast mentality is, you know, let's say that um, you, I hold an asset and I'm a reporter on the East Coast. Uh, yeah. It's a conflict of interest. And that's seen as a bad thing. On the West Coast, somebody may say, oh, you have skin in the game. Like, I want to listen to you more because you're holding the asset that you're talking about. And so you believe in it and you know, you're long. And yeah. so, again, overgeneralization. But let's just say that there's an East Coast, West Coast mentality. I think this West Coast mentality of like, if you want to have a solution, like build one or like cr- create one um, is going to play out in a really interesting way. 
Uh, that doesn't mean that it's going to work or it's not going to work. It's just, it, it's a different strategy. And so what we haven't seen yet, um, and again, some of it's just, we haven't had enough time, but I don't think we've really seen uh, what I'll call like the legacy billionaire playbook being used by pretty much anyone in crypto yet. I'm sure it'll happen, right? But but it just feels like um, there's still very much like a, uh, 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 value accrual states. Like people are looking for, hey, yeah. how, do we, how do we continue building today? And oh, by the way, we'll do some good along the way. But nobody's, I was, I'm retired. I was, gonna, I was gonna ask about how much of a factor you think age of this is to flip the tables here. I mean, like, I mean, to me, like that seems like, I mean, generally lots of people in crypto are younger, right? Of um, course. You know, I do think, I do think kind of spending time on philanthropy or, or you know, spend, Spending your money on philanthropy or on politics or on whatever you kind of see your civic responsibility as this stuff does take time. And lots of crypto people are still sort of in the, yeah, still trying to make the money um, or are still, you know, data or still trading or still investing or still running companies. So I think some of these people might argue they don't have the time to solve the problem. Uh, and ultimately, you know, maybe in, right to your point, this is obviously very, we're in the early innings of this story and maybe in 30 years, uh, they'll end up just like the rich people of the fiat world. But I do think we're seeing like some some outside the box thinking on, on some of this stuff. I mean, there is a younger generation of kind of crypto folks who, even if they're not necessarily spending the money yet, uh, are, are thinking about their kind of financial contributions and their civic responsibilities differently. Like, um, you know, I've written about Sam Bankman-Fried, who obviously is uh, CEO of FTX, and I think is now the youngest billionaire in the country. I think he's only 29. Net worth is somewhere in the 10 to 15 range, I think. I mean, Sam, I, I've talked with him before. Um, you know, he he sees his his role in the world as make as much money as humanly possible, like any means necessary, blow it up. And then point two in that kind of uh, life journey is to give it all away to, in his opinion, you know, the best way to give it away is to effective altruist causes. Um, and that's a very different kind of thinking than sort of, sort of some of the old guard, you know, capitalism, right? Where you sort of think about civic responsibility while you're building the company, you think about good in the world. And Sam has a very kind of contrarian opinion. Like he, he thinks a lot of that is like bullshit. He thinks a lot of the money that is made through like socially responsible ways actually leads to worse outcomes than just being, you know, a cutthroat capitalist who then makes as much money as humanly possible and then gives it away as quickly as humanly possible. Um, Certainly, I know there are people who disagree with that, but I think you're beginning to see some different sort of points of view among crypto billionaires in ways that I think will challenge conventional wisdom. Another good example is is, is Vitalik, right? I mean, uh, you know, I don't know what his net worth is, and obviously in crypto, like net worths are just kind of go up and down. Uh, Make a billion, more. lose a billion in a day. Who cares? Yeah. <laughs> but did, 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 did you follow? Did you follow the story with Vitalik and um, um, the money he donated in Shiba Coin? Yeah. India, did you follow that at all? I saw that he what is like a billion dollars. Somebody that had sent him, and then he basically turned around and he donated it. Yeah, but like I mean, like what's like the net? Like I do think some of the crypto donations like do have some asterisks around them. Like I think if you gave, if 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 Italic gave you know a billion dollars in Bitcoin, like that would be you know I don't think that would need a, a that heavy an asterisk. But you're I don't even I don't follow this stuff as closely as you do. But like when you donate a billion dollars in, in Shiba Coin. And you know, it like the, the the value of the coin tanked immediately after he donated the money. So was it really a billion dollars, or was it something else? Um, uh, I think I think 
a lot uh, we're, we're, we're I don't have great answers, but uh, some some of the the definitions around crypto donations, I think, um, need to be reconsidered a little bit just because the values of these things are so volatile. Yeah. Well, one of the other pieces uh, that's really fascinating to me is when you look, think of the um, maybe the, let's call it the fiat billionaire playbook versus the crypto billionaire playbook uh, mm-hmm. is a lot of the crypto folks, from what I can tell so far, and again, this may change over time, uh, they do less of like what I'll call like the status donating. So mm-hmm. I have yet to see somebody donate uh, to a school and put their name on a building. I've yet to see somebody do it at a museum, right? Like all the things that you would normally see, uh, maybe the closest we've gotten to it is somebody's made a donation to a school and they have like a scholarship in their name or something, right? right. But but right. not right. what I think most people think of like the billionaire ego stroke donation, put my name across the front of the building and every student that walks in here will know you know who I am and, and I made this sure. place. Again, that yeah. could drastically change, but there is an element of like, I don't think they really put that much value on the physical building to begin with. They live in the digital world, right? Like, like it's almost like, why would I, you know, give you all this money to put on a physical building? Like, let's do something in the digital world. I I, I don't know. Yeah. I think, I think, um, I don't know if that's entirely a, a, a crypto versus fiat thing versus like tech and innovation economy versus non-tech. Um, uh, like I, I think a lot of people who are not, who are, who are, tech billionaires, but fiat billionaires would agree with that, that like all these East Coast people who are like obsessed with like the status of charitable giving, like the Met Gala is probably like the best example of kind of this like, you know, charity status circuit that like, uh, you know, lots of people on the West Coast roll their eyes at really hard. Uh, Though, like, I think the breakthrough prize on the West Coast certainly has some of that same uh, status seeking. That being said, um, uh, yes, I, I do think lots of wealthy people in the current generation, uh, whether they're fiat or crypto, see the name on the building stuff as just like total ego stroking. Um, and I'm always kind of humored by some of the defenses when you talk to kind of East Coast billionaires about this stuff. Like they they argue that like, oh, well, it helps improve the reputation of the school. Uh, and, you know, that there are these kind of altruistic motivations for having their name on it, which uh, I do not necessarily buy um, like the David Geffen, you know, he just contributed, I think, $100 million to Yale and he's getting his name on some program over there. Um, look, I mean, the the idea that, that status is a part of charitable giving is, you know, an immutable law of the universe. And I don't know if that's going away anytime soon, but I don't know if you really need the name on it to tell people privately you did it. If given that you spent so much time you know, reporting on kind of this like money, power, ego. Uh, you've literally studied billionaires now for years um, and, and understood what I'll categorize inherently. There's going to be, you know, kind of good outcomes and bad outcomes there, regardless of the strategies people have pursued. Uh, it sounds crazy today, but there's probably a number of existing crypto billionaires that are listening to this and also many future crypto billionaires, just given how quickly the industry is growing and, and how large it likely sure. will become. What would be like maybe your advice or just like words of caution or uh, some sort of like guardrails, things you've seen that, hey, maybe don't do this or maybe think about it this way? Like, is there anything that you can kind of impart from like a knowledge standpoint on people who either are at that point in life or or could potentially get there? Uh, Very flattering question, considering uh, what the fuck do I know? But 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 (laughs) you've studied it, you know, more than most. Yeah, yeah, I know. But like, I think I mean, I'm sort of in the cheap seats. and I totally I totally totally concede that to some extent. Um, But look, I mean, I've seen I've seen people screw up uh, in ways that I 
in ways that I find admirable and ways that I find less admirable. I think that as, as, as a general point, I think the, 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 the tolerance for screwing up uh, at this stuff uh, is often lower than is when it comes to people's business work. And I think it actually should be the opposite. Um, mm. Some Sometimes people are like, uh, like okay, the, the, the great example of kind of, or the, the stereotypical canonical example of billionaire screwing up at philanthropy is the Mark Zuckerberg $100 million donation to New York schools in 2010, announced on Oprah Winfrey show. Uh, there's a great book about kind of what went wrong there. Um, and you, you hear it like this is a hundred million dollars in one school district a decade ago. And it's crazy how much that one donation still is like lodged in the psyche of these people. Like, Oh, I don't want to pull a Zuckerberg in Newark. I, I think it's honestly made some people avoid charitable work altogether in a way that you, you might not wish that that would necessarily be the case. And people are so scared of messing up that they don't really try anything. Now, look, I mean, there are ways in which messing up can hurt people, right? Like if you're a second grader at Newark Public Schools and Mark Zuckerberg shows up and, you know, your school goes to shit, you're not like they're saying like, oh, well, Zuckerberg screwed up. So like, you know, good for him. Like your second grade was just ruined, right? Um, I don't think you're thinking any bigger than that. So the the thing that I think that wealthy people need to wrestle with is how do you try things in a way that is innovative and take risks and do things explicitly that governments cannot um, because their risk appetite is theoretically lower while also reckoning with the real world consequences of this stuff, right? Um, lots of wealthy people, I think, would love to just give away money to some like indiscriminate anonymous person living far away uh, and not really reckon with the public consequences of it. Uh, but there are public consequences of it. I, I see this with political giving too. Um, for for future future super PAC mega donors out there, you know, lots of wealthy people I think get hoodwinked into funding political stuff they haven't really vetted. Um, I'm shocked at how many wealthy people um, and billionaires sort of use their corporate staffs to execute their personal political giving in ways that these people are not qualified often to be in charge of like uh, of kind of overseeing a hundred million dollars to, you know, win an election. And I often think that wealthy people need better advice on this stuff um, and need to hire full-time political practitioners who uh, are campaign people who are not like, you know, the SVP of government relations who, you know, is uh, cosplaying as a, you know, political mega donor Sherpa. So I think the other thing is to hire people who know what they're doing um, and not try to be the the maestro behind the scenes, you know, making individual decisions. There's a whole reason there's a professional political and nonprofit industry. And I think trusting those people more to make the right decisions and not trying to like Bigfoot this stuff uh, is probably a good, a good piece of general advice out there. So one of the things uh, I want to, move to close on is this idea that um, in the Bitcoin world, uh, donating to Bitcoin developers is generally seen as a very positive thing to do. Um, Interesting. And, and it's usually done from the idea of uh, these are individuals who in many cases uh, don't have a regular job, income is uh, sparse or comes from many different sources. And so uh, if we can help fund your work, then you end up being uh, much more effective. Now, 
The reason why I think that's interesting is because uh, in some way, a fiat billionaire donates money that to, let's say, a charity. That charity then does work, and uh, it's much harder to tell, um, you know, kind of what the impact of the work is, uh, what the uh, kind of outcome is, et cetera. With this Bitcoin developer mechanism, I gave you the money. I can see your GitHub, right? Like I know how much code you're pushing. I know what you're building. Right, is it right. high quality? Is it not to get included in the code? Like there, there's so much more um, kind of uh, transparency to the actual work that's being done. Do you see a world where fiat billionaires start moving more and more to this model of rather than almost give it to like an intermediary and then have that intermediary go and you almost lose the transparency? Are we seeing more billionaires just say like, kind of get out of the way a little bit as the middleman. And I want to just go and hand the money right to the person. And whether they're successful or not, I feel better because I know that that person actually received the funds. So this used to be, I think, a very niche point of view that during COVID has become extremely mainstream to the point where it's almost been US government policy, right? I mean, so there's an organization called Give Directly, um, which is popular, has always been popular among the tech set. And you know, effective altruists, people like Dustin Moskowitz, and probably lots of crypto people as well have been interested in Give Directly. But it was not like this, you know, this was not the American Red Cross. I'll say that, you know, this is not an institution that was, you know, had mainstream appeal. And obviously, during COVID, you know, as part of as part of the stimulus measures, we've seen the US government, you know, give people checks for, you know, do whatever you want with it, buy an iPad, go gamble at, at you know, in, in Vegas, um, or buy crypto, whatever. Um, uh, and I think it's become uh, much more mainstream to just give people money, uh, and that, well, whether that's your government or whether you're a private philanthropist. There's a lot of wealthy people who have, I think, gravitated to this idea. Now, that 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 is very simple, and in some ways, it's beautiful, right? To just like, you know, I've given through Give Directly before. Um, I think it's a you know a process that. Uh, that makes it, it it's it's easy that's the whole point of it that's easy it also sort of is a big middle finger to the entire like nonprofit industrial complex right for everything i just said a minute ago about how you should trust people with advice and hire staff um you know if you're bill gates you can log on right now to givedirectly.com and give 100 billion dollars through give directly and you can fire the 1500 people who work at the gates foundation tomorrow and you know like i mean you, you could do that if you really want to so i, I think it, cutting out the middleman look in, this is true in general and sometimes that makes a ton of sense and the middleman is just adding you know overhead costs and uh process and bureaucracy sometimes middlemen are important um like we began talking about mackenzie scott and um sort of her her kind of path-breaking charitable work as much as I think Mackenzie is a fascinating story, I do think some of the hoopla around Mackenzie is a little premature. Mackenzie certainly has cut out the middleman in some ways. She does not have a big charitable foundation. She's a donor advised fund, which is sort of a nimble vehicle for charitable giving. And everyone's talking about Mackenzie like she's the greatest thing on God's green earth. And maybe that'll be true. I do think it is certainly possible that in five years we could find out that Mackenzie maybe needed more bureaucracy. Maybe she needed a middleman. Maybe she needed a kind of more traditional charitable uh, advising. Um, you know, and some sometimes the bureaucracy has has a logic. Sometimes it doesn't. I, I think lots of philanthropists that uh, find the simplicity of giving to give directly and firing their fifteen hundred employees at the Gates Foundation uh, could regret it. But it certainly is like a, a trend that I think is accelerating uh, right now. 
It's all a game, man. Making the money is a game. Giving it away is a game. Uh, some people do it better than others on, in both directions. But uh, ultimately, I think it's all just a game. There, there, there's an element. There's an, there, there, there is an element of it that is a game. But I think people... It's also a big business, like the whole charitable world is a big business. And people, but my, my, I think my, my big overarching point here is like the philanthropy world deserves like reckoning with these questions and discussions of the trade-offs and who's doing it well, who's not doing it well. Like I often, one thing I often find frustrating about uh, some of the backlash to kind of philanthropy journalism is like, oh, you should just be thankful. Like, you know, don't ask these questions about like the game or about whether or not wealthy people are doing good. Like be thankful they're giving any money away at all. And that's just like a simplistic, like rudimentary thought process about like, it's almost like treating charity like sports. It's like, you know, more yards is good. Therefore, you know, do not criticize like, you know, should the coach be fired? Like, I mean, it's, I don't know. <laughs> I, I could talk to you about this forever because I feel like part of um, part of what's so intellectually uh, stimulating about it is that there is no right answer. Right. To, yeah, some, de yeah, to yeah. some degree, you're constantly having to iterate uh, and you want to move closer and closer to almost this unattainable goal of perfect billionaire behavior to some degree. Right. Like, like yeah. even what is that? Like, how would somebody uh, kind of quantify that or, or be able to measure it? You can't. And so instead, what we end up doing is we end up looking at the next best thing, which is uh, what are people doing? What's the impact of it? How transparent are they? And I, I, in some weird way, it almost comes down to like, how much do we trust them? Right. Yeah. I mean, there's examples of super wealthy people that most folks felt really good about and was like, that's amazing. And then you find out, well, maybe the money they got by not paying their taxes or maybe they were giving to something and it wasn't so great. And and very quickly things can change or maybe not. Maybe people actually say, oh, whatever, you know, everyone makes a mistake and they and they keep kind of feeling good about it. So it, it, it's just a crazy, crazy thing that uh, I think is only going to come more and more in the conversation. So it makes a ton of sense why you guys are doing this. Yeah, you're, you're totally right. A lot of this, a lot of this comes down to who do you trust more? Wealthy, undemocratically elected, well-meaning, but you know, inevitably uh, fallible wealthy people? Or do you trust more the lumbering government that is democratically representative in theory, but also screws up? Who do you, who do you trust to screw up less uh, is the thought I'll, I'll leave with. <laughs> Absolutely. Where can people follow you on Twitter or where can they find out uh, more about Puck and, uh, and subscribe to the work? Sure. Sure. So the, the, I'm, I'm on Twitter at, at Teddy and then my last name Schleifer, which is probably somewhere uh, associated with this podcast. Um, but the main way for folks who are listening, interested in, in this um, is you can sign up for free at uh, I'm writing a, a newsletter this summer called the stratosphere, which is the, and the word stratosphere, uh, which is a part of the air uh, for folks who are not aware of it, but the stratosphere dot news um, is, is the link that folks can, Get on the email list, and that's sort of an appetizer uh, to Puck to Puck, which is launching around uh, right after Labor Day. So Puck will be a subscription publication, but for now, for folks if we're thinking about it and want some free content, um, the Stratosphere.news is the best way to stay in touch. Puck again. The description is a new media company covering power, money, and ego. It's right there on the homepage. And I was telling Teddy beforehand. Uh, I don't think there's very many people who see those three words and don't have some sort of emotional reaction. So I think, uh, I think you guys have a pretty big audience here, but thank you so much for doing this. And uh, we'll definitely have to do it again in the future as, uh, as you guys continue your work. Cool. Thanks, man.